910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. Chris, we say it all the time to quote you ad nauseum, God's sovereignty is one of the most important theological truths that needs to be grasped. Understanding and trusting in a sovereign control of the world makes all the difference in how we view and how we live our lives. Absolutely. It's important to grasp that truth because even if we can't understand how it works completely, it is what the Bible teaches. And when we began the book of Daniel, we stressed how God is working out his plan and is totally in charge of all the nations and their rulers, as well as every single molecule in the universe. And we're going to see that in a big way in today's episode. We touched on this last week, but this vision of Daniel, especially here in chapter 11, is so unusually detailed. And the historical record lines up so incredibly accurately with this prophecy that some have tried to say that it couldn't possibly have been written by Daniel because these events were still future to him. They say that no one could have prophesied these events in such detail. Therefore, this has to be someone writing history, not prophecy. And because of that, it should be dated later, like during the Maccabean period, they say, and therefore wasn't written by Daniel. That goes against the Bible. That's right. We talked about this last week. In the ancient Near East, there was a form of literary genre called pseudo-prophecy. That was written not to predict historical events, but was written after the events happened in order to interpret the historical events. The pseudo-prophetical writing was to effectively be like or as if it really was prophecy, so that when it was read, it would seem as if the gods, little g, were able to determine the future. So in a way... Pseudo-prophecy is another type of false prophecy, something counterfeit. And Rose, that's all Satan and his minions can do, be counterfeits. That's right. But Rose, we know that the one true God really can give extremely detailed prophecy. And that's what he does with Daniel in these chapters. It only seems like pseudo-prophecy because of how it's written. But it was written that way by Daniel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Because although it was obscure, one of the places that pseudo-prophetic writing style was used was in Babylon. So Daniel would have been familiar with this type of writing. So rest assured, this was written by Daniel and was truly prophetic. So let's get started. You know, it's amazing. God could create the world out of nothing and you think he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. (laughs) I know. It's insane. (laughs) Let's get started. So chapter 11 is a continuation of the vision that started in chapter 10 that we talked about in the last episode. Most of the revelation seen in chapter 11 has to do with the time of Daniel through the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, one of the Greek rulers who would eventually be in control, and we've talked about him, after the Medo-Persian Empire had been conquered by Greece. If you'll remember, Daniel gets the vision of chapters 10 to 12 in the third year of the Medo-Persians' rule. And part of that vision that we ended up with in chapter 10 was seeing the spiritual warfare that was going on behind the scenes of all that's happening on earth. Right. And chapter 11 starts with the angel telling Daniel, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. 
The angel had strengthened and confirmed the Medo-Persian ruler in their first year, enabling them to come in and conquer the Babylonian Empire. That's when King Cyrus of Persia told the Jewish exiles to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. But as we often say, Rose, there are no righteous nations or rulers. Cyrus didn't do it because he worshiped Yahweh. It was Persian policy to let the captured people go back to their lands if they wanted to, and they could live and live by their own religious customs. But they had a reason. That's right. And it was the hand of God. And the reason the Persians wanted to release the people to go back and worship their own gods was to quell rebellion and also because they were covering all their bases. You know, believing the people worshiping their own gods, again, little G, in their homelands, in effect, would be interceding on Persia's behalf with every god, little G, that's available, covering their bases. They were polytheists, and they thought of worshiping Yahweh in the same way as any other religion. But God was working through all of this to accomplish his plan. Ezra 1.1 tells us, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to have him do it. This first verse of chapter 11 is the angel telling Daniel that he had a role in those events. Right. We've spent the last two episodes telling you to get the Tylenol out. Well, this week we want you to relax. Verses 2 through 45 of chapter 11 are detailed prophecy that we can look back at and see that it was fulfilled in history. These verses are in here to show the greatness and majesty and power of God by showing his absolute sovereignty over everything and to remind us of his providential care for his people. He does it by showing Daniel events future to him, but history to us. So sit back today and take in this detailed account of a history lesson and just relax and think about how awesome and powerful God is as we go through it. So let's get started. All right. So the angel tells Daniel in verse two, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the kingdom of Greece. Cambyses is the first of the three ruling from 529 to 523 BC. Next are Pseudo-Smyrtus, also known as Gamata from 523 to 522 BC, and then Darius I, 522 to 486 BC, the rich fourth king is Xerxes, and he goes from about 486 to 485 BC to 464 BC. And this is the same Xerxes or Ahasuerus that we read about in the book of Esther. King Xerxes led campaigns against Greece during his reign. During the years of 482 to 479 BC, he built outposts, canals, and boat bridges to try to reach the interior of Greece but he failed miserably. And we see that in the book of Esther. Yes, we do. Daniel 11.3 says, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This king is Alexander the Great who led the Greek empire from 336 to 323 BC. Alexander quickly took over the Persian empire and exceeded its territory and reign, moving as far into what we know now as Afghanistan. Daniel 11.4 says, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And it was pretty much as soon as he had taken over that Alexander died. We talked about all this 
when we were doing chapter seven. Before he attempts to conquer Arabia, he dies in 323 BC at the age of 32. You know, we talked about this again. Some say he died of malaria or other natural causes, and some say he was poisoned. But regardless, as we said, Alexander didn't have a son at that time to become heir to the throne. His Iranian-born wife, Roxana, was pregnant, but she miscarried one child before. She eventually does bear a son. Some say Alexander had an heir by his mistress, but there was no heir when he died, despite the rumors, and he never named a successor that could be proven. Right. He had a mentally ill brother named Philip who sat on the throne for a little bit with the help of a general named Perdiccas. And Roxana had her child. But because he wasn't full-blooded Greek, people were less than thrilled to have him on the throne. Eventually, they were both murdered by one of Alexander's generals named Cassander. And after battling it out over who was going to control the Greek empire, four rulers none of whom are Alexander's offspring, eventually end up with control of parts of this once vast empire. Their names are Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. That's how verse four was fulfilled. Also, like we talked about in episode 108, two of those kingdoms get absorbed into the other two, and the two that are left are the kingdom ruled by Ptolemy I, the strong king described in verse five as the king of the south, he reigned over Egypt and neighboring regions, and the other kingdom was ruled by one of Ptolemy's princes, further fulfilling verse 5. His name was Seleucid and is referred to as the king of the north. If you remember, we talked about the north and south and Jerusalem being in the middle. He reigned over present-day Iran, Iraq, Syrian, and parts of Central Asia. After Alexander's kingdom was split, he was put in charge of Babylon, but was deposed for a short time and fled to Ptolemy's kingdom, where he served under him for a time. Eventually, he regained control of the north, and he ends up being stronger than Ptolemy. And that's why he's called one of Ptolemy's princes. So just to refresh your memory, Rose just mentioned it, but, you know, this was really important to God's people because the promised land was, like she said, caught in the middle of these two kingdoms. And they had war going on constantly in their kingdom. And they were some of the most significant events in world history, at least from the Jews' perspective, at that time. It was major. Right. And moving on to verses 6 to 8 of Daniel 11, which were fulfilled to the letter, verse 6 says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So Chris, why don't you tell us how this was fulfilled? Okay, around 250 BC, in order to make peace and to form an alliance between the two kingdoms, Ptolemy II's daughter, Bernice, daughter of the king of the south in the verse, married into Seleucus's realm by marrying Antiochus II. When Antiochus II's first wife, Laodice, discovered that her own sons were going to be disinherited, she has Antiochus II, Bernice, and their young son poisoned. And that same year, Bernice's father died in Egypt, and he was succeeded by her brother, Ptolemy III. So verses seven, eight to go on say, 
and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And that's what happened. Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, invaded the Seleucid kingdom of the north and took over Antioch. Afterward, he returned to Egypt with a large amount of booty. This is like a nighttime soap opera. <laughs> it's like Dallas on steroids. <laughs> but I just I just dated us. So anyway, if you know who what Dallas is, don't know okay. what we talk about here. Anyway, back to the story. In 240 BC, the north struck back at the south. Verse 9 says, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Seleucus II Callinicus, son of Laodice, the ex-wife who had Antiochus II, Bernice, and the baby killed, had an unsuccessful campaign against the southern kingdom. And we get this would be a lot easier if everyone was just named Joe or Harry, but so big. Yeah, not everyone was named Joe, the first, second, and third, or Harry, the first, second, and third. <laughs> okay, so verse 10 describes what happens next. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. The fulfillment of that was after Laodice's son, Seleucus II, dies, and his son, Seleucus III, who was later poisoned, and Antiochus III, fought the Ptolemies of the South from 222 to 187 BC. Got it? Got it. That's 35 years of war going on in and around your land if you're living in the promised land. Like we said, God's people and you know were affected by these wars. 35 years of war in mm. your land. The northern king, Antiochus III, gained control of Canaan along with western Syria for a time. But in fulfillment of verse 11, Ptolemy IV Philopater, the king of the south, was moved with rage, according to the verse, and he came out to fight the king of the north. The fortress mentioned in verse 10 is probably the city of Raphia. That was a town in what's now the south part of the Gaza Strip. This is where Ptolemy IV cast down tens of thousands, according to verse 12, winning a major battle in 217 BC. Antiochus III suffered the loss of over 14,000 men at the Battle of Raphia. And the rest of verse 12 says, but he shall not prevail. Ptolemy may have cast down tens of thousands, as we said, but he shall not prevail, according to verse 12. He used native Egyptians in his army at this battle, something that comes back to bite him later when these Egyptians, along with the Jews, tired of taxation, caused internal rebellions, and they weaken the southern kingdom. These are the many who shall rise up against the king of the south, which included the violent among your own, meaning Daniel's people. And that was prophesied in verse 14. Ptolemy IV died mysteriously. They all seem to die mysteriously. Yeah, we have some of that going on in our own country. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we digress. Sorry. And his son, Ptolemy V, of course, Epiphanes, his four-year-old son, succeeded him. And verse 13 continues. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, 
He shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So seeing this very young king in charge, along with other instability in the southern kingdom, what's the king of the north do? He goes to war. Antiochus III made an alliance with Philip V of Macedon, raising an even larger army in the north to invade the southern, unstable Ptolemaic king. Okay, so I'll read verses 15 and 16. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Antiochus III fought and won against the Ptolemies at a town called Panium, which is located in what's later Caesarea Philippi. In 198 BC, Egyptian general Scopus handed over rule of that area, which is later referred to as Phoenicia and the Glorious Land, according to verse 16. That's modern day Israel and Palestine and the territories of the Gaza Strip. That was basically the end of the Ptolemaic kingdom having great strength. The Jewish people remained under control of the north until Pompey's invasion in 63, which established Roman rule. And verse 17 says, he, meaning Antiochus II, shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of a woman to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Five years later, in 193 B.C., the North and the South attempt another marriage alliance. This time it's between Antiochus III's daughter, Cleopatra, not the famous Cleopatra, she comes later on, and she marries Ptolemy V Epiphanes. So Antiochus's plan was for Cleopatra's children to rule in Egypt, giving them power there. But the plan backfired big time. It does. In, in fulfillment of verse 18, Antiochus the third turns his face towards the coastlands, as it says in the verse, of Asia Minor and shall capture many of them. But his daughter Cleopatra aligns herself with the Egyptians rather than her father, and she sought help from the Romans against the attempts to take the coastland cities, which were once controlled by the Egyptians. In 188 BC, Antiochus III is defeated by Roman general Lucius Cornelius Scipio in several battles which forces him to cede Asia Minor to Roman control, fulfilling the rest of verse 18, which says, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back on him. So the Romans force him to sign a treaty at Apennia in 188 BC, surrender his territory, pay a large tribute tax, surrender most of his military force and 20 hostages, one who was his son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, a very bad man who we're going to learn more about next week. And then verse 19 says, then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Antiochus II did return home and was killed by an angry mob while trying to pillage a temple of Zeus in Elimaeus to pay for the heavy tribute tax he had to pay to Rome. And we'll end with verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. 
Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV Philopater, succeeded him from 187 to 175 BC. He sent a tax collector named Heliodorus to collect the money necessary to pay Rome their yearly tribute. He even tried to plunder the temple in Jerusalem, but according to the non-canonical book of 2 Maccabees 37 through 40, he was terrified by a dream and decided not to. Like verse 20 says, Seleucus IV wasn't killed in anger as if by an angry mob like his father, nor was he killed in battle. But he was poisoned by his very own tax collector, Heliodorus, who decided to take away the throne from Seleucus the son. And that's something we're going to start with in the next episode. And that's a good place to end today because I think I still need some Tylenol to get all these names straight. <laughs> I think I do too. And it's a good cliffhanger. That's you right. Know, Dallas always had cliffhangers. <laughs> The moral of the story, be glad you don't live in Greece or Seleucid or Ptolemy where you would have just been poisoned. <laughs> yes, yes. And though we're not finished with chapter 11 yet, verses 5 to 20 of Daniel have a lot of history packed in them. According to commentator John Goldingray, Daniel 11 refers in a specifically historically identifiable way 13 of 16 rulers of these two kingdoms from between 322 to 163 B.C. In the grand scheme of things, this 150-year period of history are an endless sequence of conflicts, wars, and politics between two superpowers, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Neither ever is able to conquer the other, and their attempts at alliances fail. Right. And we've said it before. Why is all this in the book of Daniel? Because during this time in the future, God's people will be caught in the midst and middle of these multiple conflicts and all the politics that went with it. Some of them would take sides against one or the other ruler. Others would probably go about their daily lives without taking sides. But no matter what, all of them would feel the effects of this war and devastation that was taking place in and around the glorious land, also known as the promised land, which is Israel today. And that's why it's in there. Right. This vision given to Daniel would have put the difficulties that the Jews faced in Daniel's time in proper perspective. Yes, they had trials and tribulations, and they were going to continue to have them. But they should not be surprised at those wars and rumor of wars, and they should never forget that God is in control of everything that's happening. That's the important point being made to them. And it's an important point for us to grasp. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. No matter what happens in this world, in our country, in politics, in our personal lives, God is sovereignly in control of it all. Absolutely. Ian Good in his commentary on Daniel says, the balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all their toil? All this is, as the writer of Ecclesiastes noted, vanity. Amen to that. And that's a great place to end today. Join us next week as we finish the book of Daniel. We hope this episode has encouraged you and strengthened your faith that God has everything completely in control today and every day. Amen to that. Don't forget to check out our website www.proverbs910ministries.com and leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Have a blessed day.